get those out and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Well, it has been a while uh, since I last was in a uh, triathlon. Yeah, I really liked uh, training for triathlons. You know, the, the swim and the bike and the run. <clears throat> I prefer the triathlon that doesn't have the run, so I guess, you know, that doesn't really quite make it a triathlon. <clears throat> but I really enjoyed the swimming. You, anybody swim for exercise? Like four of you. <clears throat> uh, if you think you're in shape, I dare you, I dare you to go to the pool and try doing a few laps. Because it will get you. <clears throat> My favorite part of the swimming, I think, was the routine. Um, you know, you, you get your goggles on, you snap them tight, <clears throat> and you're in that, you know, there's just something about being in a, a pool. It's different than being in a lake. There's, in the lake, there's no stripe at the bottom of the pool, uh, uh, stripe at the bottom to make sure that you're going in a straight line. And, you know, lake water smells different, it tastes different uh, than pool. You know, when you go into an athletic club that has a pool, you immediately know, you know, because you, you smell the chlorine, and, you know, you're <clears throat> usually it's really early in the morning, and so you kind of, oh, are we doing this? Yeah, I, I guess we are. And yeah, you hop in, get those goggles tight, and you, you push off the wall. And you, to, to swim for exercise properly, you have to get the breathing down. You know, you, 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 so you, you start and you push off the wall and your head is plunged into the water. So you, hopefully you have good breath. Because then, you know, it's stroke, stroke, and you kick, 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 and breathe. And, and then you do it again. You plunge your head back in the water. Kick, 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 breathe. Kick, 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 breathe. And, you know, after you've gone a couple laps, you really start to look forward to the breath. Because, I mean, you're sucking wind by now. And, you know, when your head's plunged down into the water, your lungs start to burn a little bit, and you like, when is my breath? And it doesn't seem that you can kick fast enough to get to that breath. And, and when, you, when your head comes back up, oh, it's like life enters into your system. But then immediately, because you know the purpose of why you're there to train, your head immediately plunges back into the water. I think that living the Christian life is like lap swimming, where Jesus takes us as like lap 
swimming. <clears throat> you know, you can find churches who will tell you, they will preach to you that living the Christian life is easy. That if you do it right, that you can be healthy and wealthy and your problems are going to disappear. You can find a church that will preach that message. And it makes you feel really good about yourself. But that's not the gospel that, that I read in my book. The gospel that I read in my book is like lap swimming, where Jesus takes us into the deep water and we plunge our head in and he says, you know, paddle for all your worth and kick, kick, kick. And every so often I'm going to give you a glimpse of what the kingdom looks like and, oh, and we can breathe that in. But it's not an easy thing. It's training. Well, the disciples were in this series of messages on Mark. And we, uh, last week, were in chapter 6. This week, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 8, uh, verses 31 to 38. And there are three times in Mark, as in the other Gospels, where Jesus takes the opportunity, pulls them aside a little bit, and, and he tells them what is going to happen. He gives them this picture. He says, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm out, I'm doing my ministry, and, and I'm going to tick some people off, and they're going to make me suffer for it, and they're going to kill me, but on the third day, I'm, I'm going to rise again. <clears throat> we call it uh, passion predictions. And the the text that I want to read this morning comes uh, in Mark chapter 8. It's the first time that he shares this news with the disciples. Now, if we've read our Bibles, we remember passages uh, like Isaiah 55. Because when Jesus says that he's going to suffer and be rejected and, and that he's going to die... That's not really in line with what people were expecting. But it shouldn't come as a surprise to them. Uh, Isaiah tells the people, this is the Lord speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to the disciples. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us when we get a glimpse that, you know, this is going to take something. It's going to require something of us, that God's ways are different than the ways and the, the dreams and the schemes that we can come up with. God's ideas might be just a little bit uh, different. And so the disciples should recognize that, um, but we get to this point in Mark, and it seems to take them a little bit by surprise. The text that I want to read is uh, chapter 8, um, starting in verse 31. But to get a feel for where we are in the gospel, we probably should look at a few verses right before it. Um, Jesus has pulled his disciples away from normal ministry. They've been hard at work, Jesus healing and casting out demons and 
um, you know, restoring sight to the blind. <clears throat> he has sent the disciples out to do uh, similar tasks. And I think they're maybe just a little bit worn down, uh, feeling the weight of all of it, um, being physically worn out a little bit by the demands of um, going about the countryside. And so Jesus takes his disciples about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a place in the mountains. Uh, Mount Hermon is there. It's got three peaks. It's snow-covered most of the year. And, and out, of the, out of Mount Hermon, uh, there are several uh, streams and rivers that come together and, and ultimately end up forming the, the Jordan River. So Jesus takes the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Well, this isn't a Jewish town. This would be more of a Gentile, pagan kind of a place. So why would, why would Jesus take his disciples there, especially to um, talk to them about what being the Messiah is all about? <clears throat> While they're there, maybe re resting and relaxing, um, Jesus asks the disciples a question. He says, so who, who do people say I am? Yeah, what's the, word on, what's the word on the street? And I think the disciples probably had, you know, answers that came quickly to them. You know, it's not hard. This is not one of Jesus' trick questions. A lot of times Jesus will ask the disciples questions to test their understanding of what he just taught them. And so most of the time, I think the disciples are like, uh... You, you answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I just want to see what, what, what did you have on your page? <clears throat> well, this was a question that was easy to answer. It's not a trick question of Jesus. He's not testing their understanding of what he just taught. And so I think their hands shoot up in the air and, hey, well, some people say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, come back from the dead, a prophet of old. And Jesus, he kind of nods his head. Yeah, that's kind of what I've heard too. You know, when you think about that, think about that for a second. Sometimes, especially if you look at artwork and what we often like to talk about, about Jesus, might paint a picture of Jesus being this comfortable person. You know, kind of cuddly, you know, give Jesus a hug kind of an image. He's, he's a nice guy. Is it, would you agree? A lot of times the picture that we see of Jesus is the nice guy Jesus. Well, the word on the street at the time when Jesus was walking around over there, the word on the street was that, that he was a fiery prophet. I mean, you remember John the Baptist, this guy, right? I mean, he called people to the carpet for their sin. I mean, repent, get baptized. You know, he called... Uh, you know, he called Herod on his affair and, and marriage, and, and he ended up getting beheaded for it. John was not one to, to beat around the bush about where you're at with God and how your life isn't really lining up. And I mean, this is a guy who wore camel's hair, clothing, kind of a rough guy, you know, his diet, locusts and wild honey. Whew. 
I don't think I'm going to get that in the buffet line today. Well, then you had Elijah, similar figure, straight out of the Old Testament. Went around telling the people in the power structure how they were getting it wrong and calling them back to God. This is the kind of picture that people saw in Jesus. Hey, there's some great things coming out of this guy. I mean, he's healing people. He's restoring people. Uh, he's preaching good news, but there's an edge. There's an edge to this Jesus. He's requiring stuff of us. He's not beating around the bush on any of it. The disciples had figured that out. It's easy to keep your ear to the ground. Oh, yeah, this is, what, this is what's going around, floating around on the Internet. Yeah, Jesus, they think you're John the Baptist and, or Elijah. Well, then, <clears throat> you know, that easy quiz is kind of over and he looks straight straight in the eye who do you say I am and if we read the Greek right the question might have come out and it would have sounded maybe something like what are you saying about me what are you saying so not what have you said, what will you say, but what are you saying now? Think about that. What have you said about Jesus in the past that you're not saying now? What do you think that, well, you know what, someday I will say this about Jesus, but I'm just not there yet. That, that's not Jesus' question. He looks him square in the eye. He says, what are you saying about me right now. Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. The one that God has promised is what Peter says. Matthew gives us a picture of, of what happened right after that. Mark just kind of cuts it off right there. Mark chapter 16. <clears throat> Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock being Peter's confession, on this confession I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He continues to bless Peter. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wow, Peter. <laughs> Peter, wishy-washy Peter. Bold, unpredictable Peter. He gets the answer to one question right, and Jesus recognizes that he's been in tune with the Holy Spirit, and he says, blessed are you. Because you paid attention to what the Holy Spirit was trying. You didn't get that answer on your own. You were led to it, and you spoke it out loud. On that kind of a confession, I will build my church. 
and hell won't overcome it. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not Peter, but if I was, <clears throat> that would be a spiritual high point in my life. Would it not be for you? I mean, I would be tempted, you know, because the, the disciples oftentimes argue with, the, with each other about who's the greatest disciple. <laughs> Peter just got, he just got the answer from Jesus. I'm number one, I'm number one. He's got the big foam f number one finger, and he's waving it. And see, I'm number one. He's got the fist pump, and oh, yeah. It's a, it's a good moment for Peter. He has answered Jesus' question, which that's a, this is a hard question. What are you saying about me? I'm saying you're God's Messiah. Well, it's going really well up until this point. And we get to the passage that I want to read to you today. Jesus has blessed Peter. He's taken his victory lap. And Jesus sees this as the perfect teaching opportunity. And so we're in Mark chapter 8. I want to read verse 31 to 38. And I'd ask you to stand with me to honor the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, uh, and that he must be killed and after three days would rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? For someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I think we better stop right there. That's enough to chew on for a while, isn't it? It's the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You can be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever had one of those cold shoulder moments in your life? You know, like you go to greet somebody and, you know, they just totally ignore you know, when you put your hand out. You ever had a cold, you know, maybe it's a Dear John letter, you know. You know, it's been so nice. It's not you. It's really me. You know, you get rejected. And Peter just got a cold shoulder from arguably his best buddy. Jesus. I remember it was in, in August. I was a student 
in seminary in Kansas City. And the, the program that I went through allowed me to go to Kansas City just a couple times a year for two weeks and get all of the lecture portion of classes in and then have to do all the reading and writing assignments uh, outside of that time there. But I would travel to Kansas City and, and stay at the seminary. Well, one of my best friends lives in Kansas City area, and so every time that I got to go there, it was, it was a good opportunity to, to catch up with, with my friend. And we were out to dinner. We decided, well, oh, let's go into downtown Kansas City. Woohoo, right? <clears throat> um, so we were walking along, trying to find a place to eat, and it was like, oh, maybe two or three blocks away. And there's not too many people on the streets at, at this time of the evening, but there's these four uh, figures dressed to the nines, you know, suits, ties, you know. It was kind of warm outside, but one of them, you know, had a long jacket on. I'm like, what? What is this? You know, so we, we just stopped and watched. And, you know, here, here they come, walking down. They're going to walk right by us. <clears throat> They're in the block ahead, a block right over here. And, and then there's this, there's, there's a family that's coming by, and there's, oh, three or four boys, maybe eight to ten years old. And they're, like, excited. And we're like, huh, why, why are they so excited? Well, they're looking at the same people. Well, they recognized before we did that it was uh, three players and the general manager of the New York Yankees coming down the sidewalk. And it occurred to us once it struck me, like, oh, yeah, the Yankees are in town playing the Royals. Hmm. So as they come close, my eyesight's not good, you know that. So once they came into the range where I could decide, Alex Rodriguez was one of them. And so they, they walked across the street, you know, we're, we're just watching. These kids are all excited, they've got... You know, they got cards out like this. One of them had a baseball and, and a pen. And, you know, they're, they're you know, shaking. Man, this is awesome. Like, we never see sports heroes out in public like this. And so the four guys, they come right by these little kids. And the, and the kids are just enamored with these superstar baseball players. And, and they've got, you know, Yankees gear on and everything. These aren't just like... Kansas City Royals fans, you know, trying to, you know, get an autograph. So there's one kid, he tugs on Alex Rodriguez's coat. Can I get your autograph? No. No. None of them even bothered to stop. It was like, don't bother us, kids. We're on a mission. We're, that's a cold shoulder. Those kids, I wanted to go sign something. Hey, you can have my autograph. <laughs> like, yeah, nice try, Bach. <laughs> What's that going to be worth, you know? <clears throat> That's a cold shoulder moment that I don't think those kids would forget. I don't think that maybe they were fans of the Yankees anymore. I'll never cheer for them. Sorry, any Yankees fans in here. Um, Jesus tells his disciples 
that he was going to go, uh, he was going to have to suffer many things, and that the religious system, he names a couple sources, you know, chief priests and all the religious leaders, they're, they're going to reject me wholeheartedly. The message that I've been preaching, preaching they're, they're going to dismiss. <clears throat> so much so that the suffering that I will go through will lead to my death. But on the third day, I will be raised a new life. I'll be raised again. Well, Peter, Peter wouldn't accept what Jesus said. That's... That was too far removed from his expectations. That's too far removed from what he had been taught about what a Messiah would do. A Messiah would bring freedom from the oppressors. In this case, in this time and place, it would be the Romans. So if somebody was trying to articulate you know, what the Messiah was going to do, well, the Messiah was going to raise up the people and they were going to conquer the Romans. And not only will the Messiah do that, but the, but the Messiah will come in and will start, uh, let's just say, cleaning out the temple. Getting rid of the religious leaders who had taken what God had given them in the totally wrong direction. The Messiah will correct that. And the third thing that the Messiah would do, would he would bring evidence uh, that God's reign was there in the land. And the people had started to see signs of this. And now Jesus says, yeah, but this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. That's, where, that's what Peter heard. And he's like, no, no, no. That's not what's going to happen. And so Peter takes it upon himself to straighten out Jesus' theology. And he, you know, I think... You know, he probably took the foam number one finger off and laid it aside, and he got his keys out. This is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. And uh, I need to tell you something about how it works. So he grabs Jesus by the elbow, and he pulls him off to the side, and you know, he starts wagging his finger. No, Jesus, that's not what being a Messiah looks like. You will never... If you fill the church pews if you preach a message of suffering and death. You'll never make your budget. This is not good for recruiting. People do not want, you can't recruit people to suffering and death. You need to focus on the victory, the power, the fame, the position that we will get when you step into your role as the king, as the Messiah. That's what the Messiah is, Jesus. Remember that. Well, that's, that's pretty bold, right? I mean, Peter takes Jesus aside and starts wagging his finger in his face. Well, Jesus reacts equally strongly to, to what Peter has to say. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Come again. I mean, high point for Peter, low point. Did you just equate me with the devil? Well, whatever Peter said must 
must have gotten Jesus' attention. It reminded Jesus of the time when he was just starting out his ministry. He had come up out of the waters of baptism. You remember that? We talked about it a few weeks ago. And immediately after his baptism, it says that he was driven out, taken out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Well, Mark doesn't spell out all of the temptations the other gospel writers do. You can read about those in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But the, the short cliff note version of those temptations was that Jesus could have the crown without the cross. You can have the glory without the suffering. You can do, go your own way, your own agenda, because you are powerful enough to do so, and you can bypass that whole plan of God thing. Well, what Peter has just told Jesus was the same thing. It's not how messiahship works, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross to get the crown. That's not what being the Messiah is all about. Jesus rebukes Peter for this. And he says, you're not thinking about the things of God, you're only thinking about human concerns. What Jesus, I think, was trying to get Peter and the disciples to understand that so far to this point, they just went right over their head, was that God's primary goal isn't freedom from earthly challenges that we face. God's primary goal for all of us is that we could be forgiven for our sins. And that was lost on the disciples. They were caught up in the earthly concern part of it. There, there's something I want you to notice. One, something that I do all of the time when I'm reading uh, the biblical text, especially in the gospel stories, is I like to imagine what the stage directions would be if somebody were trying to plot out the story uh, for a stage play. So if we look at, well, if we look at the story, you know, where, you know, who are people, who do people say that I am? I, I think that, you know, Jesus is, is here, the disciples are gathered around him, or maybe they're strolling along, I, you know, one of those <laughs> two instances, and he just calls out the question, who do people say that I am? And, and I think because they're so excited that it's not a trick question that their hands just shoot up, yeah, pick me, pick me, I know this one, I want to answer this one. And they start just, you know, before Jesus can call on them, they're shouting out the answer, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of old like Jeremiah. And then after those answers, and Jesus says, yeah, I understand that. You know, there's this pause, like one of those pauses that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. What are you saying about me? And then it's a longer pause. And I imagine the disciples maybe elbowing each other, like, you, you answer this one. You, Peter. Peter. Are you paying attention? And they're kicking the dirt around. And Wow, nice day, isn't it? And Jesus is just staring at him. What are you saying about me? And then 
from somewhere deep, Peter says, you're the Messiah. That's how I imagine that stage play to go. Well, we get to our text today. And I think that, um, <clears throat> Brian, would you help me for a second? He doesn't know this, and I'll probably, I owe him five bucks now. Come on up here. <clears throat> this is Jesus. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, <clears throat> so Jesus is here, and, and I'm a disciple. I'm going to be Peter. Can I be Peter? That'll be all right with you? All right. So, uh, you know, this is Jesus, and we're kind of gathered around, and there's, you know, 12 of us, and then, you know, the way that Mark tells the story is that there's a crowd that's close by, that's within earshot, calling distance, because in, in verse 34, it says that, that Jesus was talking to the disciples, and then, and then he called the crowd in, right? All right, so... Uh, <clears throat> Jesus has uh, just said that you're going to suffer, that you're going to be rejected, and then you're going to die. But then you're going to be raised to new life. Well, I stopped listening when you said you were going to die, because I don't want you to die, Jesus. Is that good news? Okay, good. I don't want him to die. And I get upset about this. And so now I'm going to take Jesus like this, and we're going to go over here, and we're going to have a little chat. And I'm going to come right over here. So now look at this. Jesus' back is to where the disciples are, over here, and his back is to the crowd, and I'm Peter, and I'm just, you know, like the baseball players, and I'm kicking dirt in his feet, and ah, you can't say that, Jesus, you're not going to die, that's not what being a Messiah is all about. So I get done with my little spiel, and now what does, what does Jesus do? Mark says he addressed the disciples that were over there. He knows that whatever he says right here, Peter can hear. I can hear. But he's talking, his instruction now is to the disciples that are over here. Do you see what he just did to me? Jesus just turned his back on me. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. <clears throat> it's Jesus right here. Everyone, <laughs> Jesus turned his back on Peter. And then he talks to the disciples over here, and he says, Peter, talking to Peter who's over here, Peter, you're not thinking about the concerns of God. You're thinking only about human concerns. Now, with his back still turned to Peter, he calls all the rest of you in. You know why he does that? You know why Mark makes a point to tell us that he calls the crowd in? Because Jesus' message right here isn't for 12 people. Jesus' message right here is for every single person who would say they are a follower of Jesus, which means it's you. Jesus calls the crowd into the conversation, so whatever the disciples are hearing, Mark has just showed us that Jesus invites us into the conversation. How do you think Peter's feeling about right now? He just read Jesus the riot act. Jesus has turned his back onto him and said, get behind me, Satan. I think what happened was that Peter forgot his place. 
And Jesus just gave him a very physical reminder of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Peter, remember when I was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and you and your brother Andrew were out there, you know, you're trying to cast those nets out into the lake and catch some fish? Yeah. What, what did I say to you that day? He said, come follow me. I'd make you fishers of men. Peter, can you explain to me what the word follow means? It means to get behind you, to take my place in line. Yeah, what else? It means that wherever you step, I step. Wherever you go, I go. Yeah, yeah, that's what it means. Do you ever feel like Jesus turns his back on you. Now, we don't like to talk about that because we like the nice Jesus, if we're really honest. And we will come up with phrases that are biblical that say that he will never leave us or forsake us. You know that one? That's absolute gospel truth. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. But I guarantee once in a while he'll turn his back on you. You know when he turns his back on you? It's when you grab Jesus by the elbow and you say, Jesus, this is what I want to do. We're going over here and this is what it means. We can have the crown without the cross. We can skip ahead to the college class, the advanced class on glory, and we don't have to sign up for Suffering 101. And when we take Jesus by the elbow and we lead him to wherever we want to go, that's not really in line with where he wants to go, he's going to turn his back. And it's a physical, it's a reminder of what it means to follow. When you do the end around and try and take Jesus to the places where you want to go, once in a while, you will feel like Jesus turns his back on you. And it's not because he's left you. It's because he's reminding you. He's trying to get your attention and remind you that, no, it's not about your will. It's about mine. It's not about where you want to go. It's about where I want to go. Hmm. Well, that's a hard lesson to learn. This isn't the nice Jesus. This is a Jesus with a little edge to him that, you know, gets in our kitchen and gives us this lesson You know, I've been a, a pastor long enough to know, to hear so many stories about how people like to choose their own direction. I have this great idea. Yeah, it might be great. What is, what is God telling you about it? I don't know, but I'm asking him to bless it. He, who hasn't done that? And people get really frustrated when the plans that they lay before God and ask Him to bless don't seem to be coming to fruition. 
or that it's an uphill battle. It's like a grind. You get to force something. And so I am on the end of the frustration side of that. Why, why does it seem like God's foiling my plans or he's against my plan? Like, did you ever ask him what your plans should be? Well, I asked him to bless what I wanted to do. No, that's not the question. It feels like God's turned his back on you because maybe your plan wasn't in line with where he wanted you to go. Maybe the plan that you have is selfishly motivated. It's really what you want to do. And you didn't lay it before him and say, God, is this, is this what you want for me? In those moments, it feels like Jesus turned, not because he's leaving you or forsaking you, but he's reminding you what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it looks like to take your place behind him and go wherever he goes and do whatever he does. That's the call to being a disciple of Jesus. I remember Lake Ellen Bible Camp. I went there in 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th after the, after the school year. And it might have been, I think it was probably junior high camp sometime. Good old days at junior high Bible camp up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And, of course, it was called Lake Ellen Bible Camp, so there was a lake there called Ellen. And there was a trail that went all the way around Lake Ellen. <clears throat> well, one of the leaders, hey, I got a great idea. Yeah, what's the idea? I mean, junior high boys are always into good ideas from leaders. What are we doing? Hey, I hear that there's really good blueberry picking all the way around the lake. You want to go? Oh, yeah, let's go. You know, not knowing what the trail around Lake Ellen looked like, we are all in. Let's go. So the leader's out front, and we're kind of, you know, seven or eight of us are following along behind. Here we go. We're going to get some blueberries. And this was a hot, this was like a hot day for the upper minutes. It was like 80, 82 degrees. But that felt hot with no clouds and the sun beating down on you. So, you know, we get 200 yards in. Oh, I'm hot. I'm hot. And then we go around this bend, and there's like this swampy area. So, you know, we're kind of trudging through. And like, Where's the blueberries? Well, I think they're on up ahead. So we get through to the other side of this. Man, you're going to have to wash these shoes. And then you hear this Bees. Bees. We've got to go through a swamp, and now there's a long stretch where there's bees everywhere. Well, where are the blueberries? Well, they've they, they got to be up here. Well, you know, it's upper Michigan, and, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and upper Michigan can all claim the mosquito as the state bird. And so... There's bees, and there's mosquitoes, and we're swatting ourselves. And, and then we get to this section along this lake, and it kind of, there's the trees, there's not as many trees, and there's these big horse flies. 
swamps and bees and mosquitoes and horse flies, and the sun is just cooking us. Where's these blueberries? Well, I think they're just on up ahead. Well, then there's a sign for a dump. And the, wow, that was ripe. And then there was a sign that said, beware of the bear. And the leader says, well, I didn't know about this. (laughs) Come on, there's a swamp, and there's bees, and there's horse flies, and there's mosquitoes, and now there's a smelly dump that we're going through, and there's a bear that we have to watch out for. Where's the blueberries? Oh, I guess we just have to keep on going. I don't remember if we ever found, we probably found some blueberries, but let me tell you, it wasn't really worth it. That was a long walk around Ellen for nothing, in my book. And I was thinking that the problem with getting behind Jesus and following him wherever he leads us is that sometimes he seems to be taking us to places that we just don't want to go. He insists on leading us through the bees and the mosquitoes and the horseflies and the smelly dump. And, you know, quite frankly, I would have just as soon have been kicking back and relaxing around the campfire or, you know, lounging on my foam mattress on top of my sleeping bag reading a book. I would have just, I would have been happy doing that. But no, the leader says, we're going to go get some blueberries. You want to go? Sure. Oh, I forgot to tell you about this. It's just a place that I don't want to go. And See, Jesus is always bent and determined to go where there's hardship and suffering. That's what he does. He goes to where there's pain and there's brokenness, and he brings new life into it. Amen? He just seems to be bent on going to these places. And I think that's where the battle is for us. Because we don't want to go through the bees and the mosquitoes and the horseflies and the dump and buy the nasty bear. We want to be comfortable. We want Jesus to bless our materialistic lifestyle. We want him to make us comfortable We want the Jesus, the comfortable one, the picture that we started off with. We want the Jesus that just says, oh, this is all good, and if you follow me, all your problems are going to disappear, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Wait, that's not. That's not the Jesus that we read about today. He he sees this as an opportune time to to pull the disciples back together. Peter's still here, back to Peter, and here's the disciples, and here's the crowd, and, and what does he tell them? He, says, he tells them you've got to do three things. He says, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. And the, let me tell you this, the crosses weren't little pretty things like this. They weren't just, you know, like ornaments that you dangled around your neck back in that day. When people heard imagery of a cross, they walked by crosses where people were dying on them every day. They knew that the cross was an instrument of torture and destruction and death and capital punishment. 
They knew what Jesus meant when he said, you got to pick up your cross, because when, when a criminal was condemned to die on a cross, part of the punishment was taking that big cross beam, and they would strap it to their arms, and they would make that prisoner carry the cross beam to wherever it was that they were going to be executed, and then they would be tacked up on the tree. When Jesus says, take up your cross, the disciples knew what he meant. That your will is going to have to be crucified. That whatever agenda that you have, you're going to have to deny that and take up the agenda of the master. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. And then he says, remember the word follow. You've got to follow me. Paul talks about it. In Galatians chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You have to get rid of yourself. You have to set that aside for the sake of Christ. You have to take your desires, your wants, your whims, the things that you think that you have the right and privileges for, and you got to tack them up to that cross, is what Jesus, you got to pick up your cross, and you got to follow me. Well, that's not so comfortable, Jesus. Peter pulls him aside and says, that's not what it's about. And Jesus says, yes, it is. That's what it means to be a follower of mine. When you put all of these things together, Jesus is spelling out a call that we are to live sacrificially. We get rid of our rights and privileges uh, for the sake of the ones that Jesus has for us. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that, that, that Jesus gave up his rights and privileges, you know, the ones that he has as king in heaven, that he laid all of that aside so that he would come to earth to, to suffer and die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Jesus lived a sacrificial life for your benefit. Now, when we talk about giving up rights and privileges, well, that's what gets pastors run out of town because that falls in the category of meddling. There's lots of things that we feel entitled to. There's lots of things that we feel like we have a right to and a privilege to. And if you just listen to the news, there's all sorts of conversations all the time about people trying to take my rights away. You know what? Jesus calls us to give up our rights and privileges for the benefit of somebody else. That's called living sacrificially. Paul talks about it to the Corinthian church. They had all these sorts of ideas that I don't have to give up this, I don't have to give up that. I have the right to this. And Paul says, yes, you do. You do. If only it were about you, you'd be right. You know, there are things that we have a right for that we could claim as a privilege. But sometimes, 
Not all the time. Sometimes Jesus will say, you know that right that you think that you have, that you are just locked into? It's taking you in a direction that's not healthy. It's causing you to compromise your values because you're cozying up to the power structures of the day to try and get your way. Sometimes it leads you in the wrong direction, and so while you have a right to it, it's not healthy for you. And while you have a right to it and it's not healthy for you, it's also causing somebody else to stumble because they don't understand that you say you're a follower of Jesus and yet you insist on your own rights. Sometimes, Paul says, you give up those rights and privileges. You live sacrificially for the benefit of somebody else. It's no longer about me or my needs or my wants or my desires or my comfort or my well-being. I will give up something so that you can have a picture of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to tell these disciples. That's why he's telling them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to be rejected at the hands of the religious system and they're going to kill me because I'm trying to live sacrificially for your benefit. That's what he modeled for us, and that's where he asked us to go. That's a tough message, isn't it? That's not the comfortable Jesus. There's one more picture that you need, you need to see. You can't miss it. Peter totally missed it. Remember there were the parts of Jesus' passion prediction? He said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And? What? I'm going to be resurrected to new life. I'm going to rise again. The whole thing ends in hope. Peter stopped listening after death. Sometimes when we hear a message like this, we, we, we only hear the part where the pastor says, you got to give up this, 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 and this, because that's what Jesus says. And so we think that denying self and taking up the cross and following Jesus is this, this huge, unbelievably heavy weight that we have to carry around through life and that accepting Jesus is like accepting a prison sentence. That's the furthest thing from the truth. I don't know what the crossbeam of across these days weighs, but I guarantee, I guarantee it's lighter than trying to carry around the burdens that the world will heap on top of you and trying to keep up with what's going on out there. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And so the invitation that Jesus gives to the people is not, it is a life, it is a call to a life of living sacrificially, but it's an invitation to life. To participate in the life that he brings. You know, he gets, he plunges our head into the water. Kick, 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 breathe. And the life of living as a follower of Jesus is one where you constantly plunge your head back into the water to go where Jesus goes, to do what he does. But every so often, 
He, when you come up before breath, he gives you a picture. He gives you a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven that's at work. He gives you a picture of how he's breathing new life into the people who are around you, how he is restoring things all over the place. He gives you these little pictures. So every time you come up, you get filled with Jesus and life. But he, can't, he takes you right back into the fray because that's the life of a disciple. People of God said, amen. You know, we're going to close around the Lord's table. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the life that he brings. And he, this is something that he commanded all of his followers to do. <clears throat> if you are new or visiting with us in the Church of the Nazarene, we practice what's called an open communion. So if you've made a commitment to Jesus, then you are welcome around this table. You don't have to be a member of this specific church. If you're visiting with us, that's fantastic. We'd love to invite you around this table. The ushers are going to come forward, and I'm going to hand out the trays, and they will uh, they'll pass the trays through the aisles, and you can take a little cup and, and the little square of uh, bread and hold on to those and in these moments if you want to sing 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 loudly sing quietly if you just want